0: As we jump into the Word, we're going to do something a little different today. Um, we actually, uh, I have, uh, we produced my first book ever, co-written with Mr. Scott Saveri. And this is a life message, and we felt like this is a critical time in history to get this message out, just in what we're all facing and going through. So to help me today bring forth the Word, would you give Mr. Scott Saveri a great round of applause as he comes to the stage? My friend, my co-author, And I'm his mini-me, because we we always try to match together. Come on. Good to see you, bro. Come on, have a seat, have a seat, have a seat. Oh, it's so good to see you this morning. Thank you for helping me with this. And uh, I want you to take a moment, just tell everybody a little bit about yourself, how we met, and kind of what your background is. They all know I'm a pastor, but uh, they don't really kind of know your background, so.
1: No, I appreciate it. And I believe that if there's, if when we get to heaven, if there's uniforms, that you and I are already ahead of the curve. Yes. We always wear the same clothes. And, and our wives would be mortified by it. And we're like, you look amazing. No, I was like, you, dude, you look, look sexy amazing. today. So we Good do job. look amazing. Good
0: job. <laughs> yeah, tell everybody a little bit about where you came from. We're Louisiana boys, and that's a divine connection there.
1: No, my, I, I grew up in south Louisiana, about an hour south of New Orleans. And, of course, yes. everyone that says, is there anything south of New Orleans, and there is, it's Bayou country. And that's where I grew up. <laughs> And uh, unfortunately, I grew up godless. I grew up in a very dysfunctional home, very violent, uh, dominated by a, by a very intimidating father. And, and it kind of set me on a path of, of just woundedness, pain. And I believe a big part of that drove me into my career. And I, when, when PA and I first met, I'm like, my life's pretty similar to everybody else's. I'm like, I worked undercover for 12 years. Uh, most of that was with the DEA. And, and Adam's like, mm, yeah, I've never worked undercover. And I'm like... <laughs> Well, I worked 16 years as a SWAT commander, and uh, hes I've never worked as a SWAT commander. I'm like, well, everybody I've ever known has done those things. And he's yeah. like, you don't live a normal life. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and it was, you know, it was a lot of my, my past life, I believe, drove that life of service, of never wanting to be a victim of gin, and never wanting anyone else to ever be victimized. And, and I, was, I served my last five years as a chief of police, and... Uh, I was really at the height of my career. Uh, I I was four years away from a full 30-year pension, 100% of my highest salary. My insurance paid the rest of my life. And when I was 50 years old, God said...
0: Which was yesterday. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Right.
1: (laughs) I appreciate that. And and God said, I want you to retire. And I'm like, no, you don't understand pension math. Right? Right. And God's like, no, you don't understand obedience. Mm. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, I did. I tell you, after about two weeks, I woke up and I told Leah, my wife, the one thing I've never said. I worked 26 years. Listen, I've had a violent, violent career. I've lost eight dear friends in the line of duty. I've been to more funerals for closer friends than I would have ever imagined. I've suffered PTSD. I, I, I've Hurricane Katrina hit my parish. And every time, no matter how bad it was, I'd been shot, I'd been cut, I'd been wounded. Uh, I never, ever not wanted to go to work. Wow! And I woke up that morning and I told Leah, I said, I don't want to go to work. Wow. And what had happened was God had taken that desire out yeah, of my heart. That's right. That's right. That selfish desire. Yeah. And I walked into my mayor's office and I gave my, my two week retirement. Wow. And, and I walked off the job after wow. two weeks, after wow. 26 years. I disappeared at the height of my career, and I did it. You know, you and I laugh about yeah. it. I would like to tell you all that I did it as a, as a sacrifice, as being obedient <laughs> to God's calling. But in reality, I think to a degree, I traded up. Mm. And I figured, you know what? I have a, I have a, a Ph.D. in cultural anthropology, and I know that's, that's very cool, right? That's sexy, Anthropology. And I was teaching college. I was the chief of police. And, uh, and I was traveling the, the country as a contractor for the federal government. And I thought, I'm so important on this earth. So if God's calling me into his service, like, it's going to be huge.
0: Yeah. Like, huge. Yeah, like T.D. Jakes, Joel Osteen, huge. And me. And you. And <laughs> me.
1: And look, after a month and nothing, mm. and three months of nothing, and six months... And, and a year, and I put on about 70 pounds, and depression, and despair, yeah. and really to the point of, of just having given up. I thought God had pulled a fast one on me. Yeah. I thought, how dare you? I was at the height of my career, yeah. and you called me out to serve you, and you've abandoned me.
0: Yeah.
1: And I'll tell you, it got to the point where things turned around. I walked to Leah one morning, and I said, I said, not if. But when I kill myself, I'm not going to leave a mess for you and the kids to find. And my wife, my Azir, my much better half, she looked at me with grace and mercy and wow. said, we're going to get through this. Jesus. And that's when we found you. And I walked in this church. Our kids led us to this church. They were so connected to E.P., that we said, let's go check out and see what's going down in this church. We were going to a big mega church about 50 minutes away from here. And we walked in, and it was so Holy Spirit-filled. And, after, and I heard you were from South Louisiana. And I walked up, and we introduced ourselves. And I gave PA a super thumbnail sketch of what my life had been through. And he smiles, and he goes, Obscurity. And I'm thinking, are you making fun of me? <laughs> because I didn't know what obscurity meant. And, and he goes, you went through a wilderness season, and, and, and it clicked. Yeah. And you gave me the, the anchor to, to wrap my experience around. Yeah. And then he's become my, my spiritual mentor over the last year and a half, and we walked through that season together and wrote a book in the process. Yeah,
0: yeah. So Scott, you know, he, he says to me, he goes, so obscurity like what and so I started walking him through even my own life and then what I saw in scripture about these seasons that every believer every Christian really has to go through and it's not a bad thing we think it's God's punishment we think uh God has abandoned us and I said Scott this is beautiful this is God's favor and he's like it don't feel like favor I was like I know it feels like demonic attack every second of the day I said, but it's not. It's God's plan. It's his favor. And so with that, um, you know, as we just started meeting about it, he contacted me a few months into this. He goes, what if we wrote a book about this? What if we co-authored a book? And I said, uh, you know, I think I mentioned this to you guys not so long ago. I was like, well, that's my revelation, like. I can only have three, and so I can't just give this away. And the Lord, the Lord smacked me upside the head and said, man, I have brought you somebody. Uh, Scott and Leah are authors. They are writers, and uh, Leah's been on the New York Best Time list 40, 50, 100 million times. I don't know. And, uh, and so the Lord was like, you're so stupid. I'm giving you partnership to get the word of the Lord out to people in a way that you could never do it by yourself. What's wrong with you? And I was like, I'm so sorry, Lord. I was like, Scott, let's do this thing. And I promise you, he has picked me up on his back and carried me down the football field across the, across the goal line. And he's so sweet because I'm a really good public communicator, but I really suck at writing. <laughs> i just do. At least that's what I thought. And Scott, I'd write something. He goes, I was like, man, I'm so sorry. It took me three hours to write these two sentences because I changed it, you know, 300 times. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Second guessing it. And, and, uh, and it probably goes back to high school in a writing class that I had that didn't go so well. And, uh, and so Scott was like, no, nah, this is great. It sounds like you. I was like, okay. And just every chapter he would do that. And so as a result, we have favored, not forgotten. It's so good. Scott, why don't you just take a moment? I mean, really, we're going to use the word a lot today obscurity, wilderness. Why don't you just kind of give a brief, kind of def- heart definition? What is obscurity? What is this whole wilderness thing? What is, it, what is that?
1: You're right. You know, the beauty of the word obscurity is that it's obscure. I thought that was funny the first time you told me that, but, but you know what we've, what we've come to understand it. If you look at the, uh, an academic definition, it's, it's, you know, a season of, of dim or dark or misunderstanding or feeling of loss. And as, as PA and I came to understand it in our personal lives, it's, it's when no one knows who you are and even worse, no one really cares. And I know we've all been through those seasons and, and for PA and I, uh, it's our, our, I guess our most significant wilderness seasons is, is that, you know, when you're at the height of your career, you think of becoming, becoming obscure if you lose a job or you lose a spouse or you lose a child or life just didn't go the way you thought it was going to be. And you yeah. figure, I'm really nobody. I'm nothing. Nobody yeah. even cares who I am. But that happens, as we've discovered, yeah. with a job promotion, with marriage, Uh, We talked to a lot of women that that were so happy to be married, and then they changed their name, and then they worked their whole lives to be independent and strong, and and then just that adjustment, right, to becoming Mrs. So-and-so or moms. It's beautiful to be mom, but you have dreams and hopes, and then it's like, is it wrong to feel, like, obscure about just being mom?
0: Yeah. It's, and, and, it's something wrong with it. Did I do something wrong? That's right. Yeah. I, our key scripture is Second Corinthians. Write this down or look, turn with me quickly. Second Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18. And it says it like this. It says, and we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed. Everybody say Transformed. Are being transformed into his likeness with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So the scripture teaches us that there is a process of transformation that we will go through this transformation. I picture kind of like, you know, when the caterpillar goes into the cocoon and, and everything about that caterpillar begins to break down. It becomes, if you will, mush on the inside of that. But it emerges as something beautiful and wonderful. And I think we, when we read this, you know, we read, you know, being transformed into it was like with ever-increasing glory. So we picture that our life in Christ is gonna be from one high to another high to another high and it's just ever-increasing glory glory but that's Not the truth. The fullness of understanding God's relationship with us and this whole transformation process is that it's not a glory as we deem it as Westerners, as I'm going from higher to higher to higher. It's more like this is more cyclical. As we have these moments with God that He just does so many beautiful things, and then we have these moments, it seems like of obscurity or wilderness, and then He brings us through that, and then there's these other moments of just like this is it, this was always this is what I was created to do and made for. And then it's like, man, what am I doing with my life? And there are these seasonal moments of transformation and most people don't know it. And so I watch Christians get excited about the Lord, love Jesus, and they're holding on to those truths that he'll never forsake us. He'll never leave us. Oh, that he gives good gifts. And then they get in a season of obscurity and they feel like God has abandoned me. And if God has abandoned me, then I'm going to abandon him, or I'm going to, I can't go through this, and they'll walk away. And that's why I think it's critical, Scott, that we help the general populace of believers and followers of Jesus understand seasonal obscurity is beautiful. In fact, it's his favor. It's not him forgetting us. It's him working in a speak to that a little bit. I mean, just as you even went through that.
1: No, that's absolutely incredible. You know, that's when, when I say, I found you when God brought me to you under your, under your mentorship and friendship. I'd really come to that point that God had pulled a fast one on me. He had called me, I was obedient, yeah. and then he left me out. And then I started to think, well, what did I do wrong? Did I mishear his calling? What's the deal? And as we started to talk and discuss and explore, and you come to understand that, that this season of wilderness, same as with Moses, with Paul, yeah. with all of our biblical heroes, it is purely a season of preparation for promotion. You know, you know, like we talk about the Israelites when they came out of Egypt, and I was always like, "Well man, why'd you make them walk around for 40 years? Like you promised them the a land flowing of milk and honey. why don't you just give it to them? But you can't come from 430 years with a slave mentality, of a captivity mentality, of an addiction mentality, and be immediately delivered into a prosperity. And I don't mean money prosperity. I mean it in the way that Pa's described it a couple weeks ago in your message that yeah. was so wonderfully uh, uh, illustrated. Yeah. So you have to go through these transitional processes to prepare you for the next up. Like we talk about being in shape, which we will be one day. One day. One day. You don't just wake up and be in shape. That's right. Right? Yeah. And you've got to go to the gym. You've got to pay your dues. You've got to go through the preparation yeah. process. And then God's ready to promote you You know, I know point. for
0: me, you know, uh, you guys have heard my story many times, but I, I, I felt like God had gotten me to the place I always dreamed I would be. I'm traveling the world. I'm seeing tens of thousands of people saved a year. My product sales are six figures, just selling product. Um, and so we're at we're good income for our family, living in a big, nice house, looking at the lake there in Lake Ridge. And and uh, and the Lord says, okay, lay all that down and start a church in your 40s. And I thought, like you were talking about, well, God's going to bless it because I'm obedient. I'm going to go for it. I'm, yeah. And, guys, those first few years of the, us in this church. Well, We had what I call a Gideon's revival. We started with more people, and then they all began to leave. And it's like we got smaller and smaller, and no one was getting saved. We're meeting on a Sunday night at the Methodist Church, I'm trying to get people to do small group life with me, because I really believe that if we come together as the family of God, that we can change the world together, we don't just come and hear messages, and get our little, little check our little box, and go back the rest of our week, living Wicked, you know, we need each other, we need, and I couldn't get people to join in with the, vi- and then man, I look up one day, and we have shriveled down to just a handful of people, and I, and I said to my wife, God's abandoned me, he's mad at me. And I went through these three phases. The first question I started asking was, what sin have I committed that you're not favoring everything I touch? Some of you are like me. Everything I did for Jesus, he kissed it. He was always blessed. And so for the first time, I felt like a failure in my life. And so I went through this whole, pro- it was months of me going, God, what sin did I commit? And finally, he slapped me upside the head and said, listen, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I'm not punishing you because you're a sinner. I love you. You are my son, and I forgive you, and I cleanse you, and you're not being punished, and I'm not holding back my favor from you. That was a revelation for me because I grew up in a merit system of Christianity. That is, if I really served God, if I really did good, then God would favor me. But if I did bad, then God's got to extract His hand of favor from me. And I lived in this good-bad merit system. And remember, I teach you this all the time. God doesn't love us because we're good or bad. He loves us because we're His. He loves us because we're His. He favors us because we're his. And so then I went down this second route. All right, God, then what, who on my team has sinned? Somebody on my team is causing this church not to grow. So I started looking around. I started sniffing out everybody. You, is it you, Aiken's tent? Who's got the gold under the tent from the Old Testament? And man, finally the Lord slapped me upside the head and said, Adam, I had Judas on my team and I still raised the dead, healed the sick, and fulfilled my purpose. He said, that has nothing, that's an old covenant concept. I fulfilled all that. You don't need, it's not, you're, you're, you're not suffering because someone is going through something and I, not and I getting it all right. I said, okay, then, then I missed you somewhere. And this is where a lot of us are camped out. I made a left turn somewhere down the road when I was supposed to go right and I missed you. And I started rethinking and re-guessing every decision I ever made. It almost drove me insane. It was the first time I've ever moved into what I would call a depression. And, and, and I was really at that place of mental anguish where I, every thought, I'm rethinking everything. And, oh, then I must have missed it here. And I'm, I'm literally moving into a deep depression. I don't live in depression. I'm not that guy. I just somehow, you know, the Spirit of the Lord has kept me from that. And I'm telling you, it was a dark place. And like you said, thank God for a wife who just said, baby. Jesus is still Lord, and she just stayed there. And I remember looking in her eyes, and every now and then I'd see panic in her eyes, like "Oh my God, the man of God that I married is a loser." Every now and then she wouldn't say it, but I could see the like "Whoa, I'm going to have to carry this deadbeat all the way up the mountain from here on out." And that's when I'll just say, "God, please!" And finally, I promise you guys, I'm sitting next to a prophet at a at a wedding. And, uh, and she says to me, how's the church going? I said, oh, they're staying away by the thousands. I was being cute. And she's like, so what's the problem? I said, I don't know. We don't have a building. We don't have this, we don't have that. And she started, what about this, what about this? And I was like, yes, I looked into that. Yes, I prayed about that. Yes, I'm doing that. And finally she looks at me, she goes, well, Adam, Satan's not bigger than God. And I was like, so that's the prophetic word you have for me. Yes. Satan's not bigger than God. Well, I'm so grateful for the word of the Lord. That junk ate on me for days. Satan's not bigger than God. Satan's not bigger than God. And it hit me. All of a sudden, the Lord spoke to me. and said, Adam, I'm doing something in you more than I'm doing something through you right now. Enjoy the process. I'm deepening you and me. Because only in wilderness times can your trust get so deep and so anchored in me that you'll never fall away. And I said, Lord, let's do it. And it was in a matter of days. This building came into our possession. It was our miracle moment. Things began to explode. You started coming. You started getting saved. I was like, yes, purpose in my life. I was so excited. We'd walk around and like, we have a broom. I mean, this building, I mean, I just couldn't believe. We have chairs. We have chairs. Before, I didn't care about nobody's chairs. He did something deep in me. He brought me through that. I want you to take us through now. We see this all throughout Scripture. Tell me. Who's biblical characters that you see in these scriptures that, like, this is, like, you need to see this in this person's life?
1: You know, the Moses Moses speaks to me. Mm. And, I, and really when the quarantine began, I, I started in Exodus, and I'm still in Exodus. It continues to speak to me. But most particularly when we think of Moses, we think of that second 40-year wilderness season. Yeah. But let's go back. A lot of people are really surprised to find out that that was his second visit to a 40 year season of wilderness. His first was was when he when he killed the the Egyptian taskmaster yeah. and then he fled to Midian. And and you would think here's a guy, right? He's he's grown up in the he was raised up in the Pharaoh's house. Yeah. The best food, the best education, the best everything. But you know he had a calling on his heart and he didn't necessarily understand that calling on his heart. And what he did was some what some of us do, he self-activated what he felt was God's anointing. He did that through violence. God was going to deliver his people, but not through might, physical force, or violence, right? He was going to do it through his time, his way, his power, for his glory. And and Moses, as as beloved as as he is, he self-activated that anointing because he had a calling. He just didn't know what to do with it. And I know we all feel that way, right? There's got to be something else out there. God, what do you have for me? And that's where we understand in that calling yeah. is to just is to linger in the Spirit, wait for the Holy Spirit to reveal when that time is to activate that anointing. Yeah. So Moses really was. And had very he important. waited,
0: I mean, he wouldn't have had 40 years out in the middle of nowhere, but he, but he needed to go through that to work that out of him. Sure. Yeah, and, exactly and that right. was the
1: whole thing was, you know, similar where he spoke to me was, I thought God called me out because I was the chief of police. That's all I saw myself as was by what I did. And I quickly learned that God didn't need a chief of police in the kingdom. God needed me. Mm. And, and, the, and the unfortunate side of that was I didn't know who I was. All I'd ever been was who was what I did. So I needed that wilderness season to break off those strongholds, those chains. Yeah,
0: talk about the feelings and emotions of, like, everywhere you went, every restaurant, your meals getting paid for, people are like, there he is, there he is. You know,
1: if you can imagine… It, yeah, I worked for a, it was a large, nationally accredited sheriff's office. We were the gold standard. Then I became a chief of police, and in that same parish, which is a county uh, here, but I was catered to, and I mean, when I was catered to, I was catered to. I mean, if I had plumbing in the middle of the night, a guy, w- I had a guy for everything. I mean, if, if you know if if we were home and, and the kids was hungry, somebody would go get food. I'd walk into a restaurant, and a table was always waiting for me. I mean, I was the king of that city. And not just the city, because wow. I sat on a national boards that dictated policy for law enforcement, for police reform, yeah. traveling as a government contractor, teaching NYPD, LAPD, everybody. And I, I mean, everywhere I went, I was catered to. And then I retired, and immediately I couldn't get a table at Chick-fil-A. <laughs> I mean,
0: and I mean... It's my pleasure.
1: I love Chick-fil-A. <laughs> but, but, you know, that just, it ate at me. Yeah. And, and you know, I'll tell you another thing is, particularly to, to the men, was I, I relished the fact that I was surrounded by hundreds of men who professed their love for me, who would die for me, were brothers in blue and blah, blah. And, you know, what? the day I walked off, nobody would talk to me. Wow. Nobody. Because I gave up worldly influence. I couldn't promote them. I couldn't assign them. I couldn't do anything for them. They had no use for me. Wow! Listen, I'm, I'm not joking. I was, I had no friends. I was like the saddest 50-year-old man. Oh, I gosh, had gosh, no gosh. friends. And you know what God showed me in the wilderness? He said, you're not a good person to be friends with. You're a consumer of people. Wow. So before he could use me in ministry, particularly men's ministry, he had to teach me how to pursue men in friendship. Yeah and And he really he walked me through that process and 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 our relationship is is fruit that was born out of yeah, that yeah. out of our both of ours that are understanding what it takes to pursue relationships
0: yeah I, th- I feel like too you have been so much stronger at that than even I am, you know and I was, I was telling Scott I was like, scott, you've really you're really good at pursuing relationship and and when you've been pursued by everybody else you don't do that anymore. You don't think you need that. And for God to break that out of us and to transform. I mean, Moses, obviously, 40 years, nobody cared he existed out backside of that wilderness. And for me, as I look through Scripture, I look at the Apostle Paul, and I, I... I share this all the time. So, you know, talking about kind of the sick, uh, cyclical kind of movement of how God works in our lives, transforming us. So the Apostle Paul uh, originally, you know, he went by the name in the scriptures of Saul because that would have been his Hebrew, how his name would have been. We'll call him Paul. So as Paul gets radically saved, he's chasing God's people down. The church has just been born early New Testament church and Paul is after to destroy every person who calls himself a Christian because he sees it as a false religion as a satanic break off if you will of Judaism and so he feels righteous in his, in his pursuits and he's, he's putting people in jail he's having them killed And he has this engagement, the book of Acts tells us, with Jesus himself. And Jesus knocks him down on the ground as he's on his way to a city called Damascus. And he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he says, who is it, Lord? He says, I'm Jesus. I'm Jesus. I'm the one. And he goes, wow, I didn't realize. And he converts and he becomes a Christian. Well, while he's in Damascus, he is having these crazy experiences because he is a Pharisee of Pharisees. He's a theologian. And so he goes and starts hanging out with all his old theologian friends. And he starts telling them, we missed it. Jesus was the Messiah. And he's battling with them theologically and blowing their mind. And he begins to be so popular. I mean, he hasn't been saved just weeks and he becomes super popular. I mean, he is on fire. His, his webpage is blowing up. Everybody's coming to his conferences. I mean, just everybody can't wait to hear this guy. He's the new, you know, Michael Todd, you know, he's the guy. And so, and his sermons are magnificent. And then the Pharisees and Sadducees decide, if we let this guy keep going, he's going to convert everyone, so they try to kill him. He escapes, and for the next three years, he spends them out in the wilderness in an area called Arabia. The Bible calls it Arabia. What's he doing? What's, what's he up to? I believe God is working him through in the relationship that, with the Father of just loneliness, not popular, working that out of us, that whole thing where we 've got to be significant, what is significance, how, how do we how do we consider ourselves valuable and so he works that through and then he comes and presen- is presented in Jerusalem because now the church the, the New Testament church in Jerusalem is huge it's probably 40,000 people, so he goes to connect with them, and they won 't trust him they're like, "Whoa, this is the guy from back in the day that was trying to kill us he 's a spy now. And it took Barnabas to say, hey, he's, he's legit, it's okay. And so they, they brought him in, and now he starts going to the synagogues in Jerusalem, which is even a, it'd be like going to New York now, in New York City. And he's preaching, and they're, they're having conflict, and he's getting them saved, and miracles are happening. And then those Jews decide, we're going to kill him. So they take him, the brothers and sisters in Christ, take him, and they put him in Tarsus, where he's from. And for the next seven years... The most popular, the strongest Christian, theologically one of, the, one of the most brightest minds is sitting in Tarsus. He's doing nothing. He's making tents. He's trying to scratch out a living. And in the middle of all that, revival breaks out in an area called Antioch. So the Jerusalem church sends Barnabas to Antioch, and he goes there, and he's like, this is unbelievable. Jews and Gentiles are coming to Christ. They're getting baptized in the Holy Spirit. Fire is happening here. It's miracle time. And he has this idea. Let me go get that guy, Paul, to help me. He goes looking for him in Tarsus, finds him, brings him back to Antioch, and they blow it up. I mean, they become the top ministers. It's revival. It's unbelievable. And then the Holy Spirit says, pull Paul and Barnabas out, and I'm going to start using them for missionary journeys." So as they start going around, planting churches, healing, raising the dead, Paul raises Eutychus from the dead. And he sees this whole process of, you know, he's someone huge, and God's using it. Then he's down in Arabia. And he's in obscurity. And then he goes to Jerusalem and God's just really using him. And then they send him to Tarsus and he's nobody and nobody cares even. Then Antioch and all the people are getting saved in the missionary journeys. <coughs> Excuse me. And it's just phenomenal. And then he gets put in jail. And Paul actually says it at one point. He says, No one even comes and visits me anymore. I'm the most popular apostle on the planet and no one even comes and visits me anymore. And then what he does in jail, is he writes these letters. We know them as the the epistles from prison, or the prison epistles. I've never been to the church that he planted. I've never met the man that he raised from the dead. I've never been in any of his meetings. But what he did in obscurity is still changing my life 2,000 years later. Maybe obscurity's not a bad thing. Maybe obscurity is the place where you deepen in God. Maybe obscurity is where he does some beautiful things in you that he could never do when you're in the limelight, when you're in the favored position, if you will. Maybe obscurity is more like a sabbatical away from the grind and the forefront, and maybe it's a place of beauty where you and I can actually grow and become something and leave a legacy. Something inside of us is developed so we can leave a legacy to our children's children's children. Maybe obscurity is not something terrible. Maybe the wilderness is not something horrible. Maybe it's actually something beautiful. And it's with that that I would challenge you that this teaching that we've gone through, that we've learned, could change your life if you could embrace obscurity. You say, oh, my season right now is not what I thought it would be. It's not what God promised me. It's not what I thought my life would look like. I have three kids, and nobody knows my name. Nobody cares. There's a song that we used to sing about 5, 10 years ago, very popular in the Christian community. Um, it, it's, it's called the Revelation Song. Carrie Job sang it. Anybody recognize that song? It was a worship song. It was huge. In fact, it went all over the world. The woman who wrote that, her name is Jenny Riddle. And Jenny Riddle went to Bible school, Christ for the Nations, as a teenage girl with a vision to be a worship leader, an international worship leader. She met her husband there, and they got married at, right out of Bible school. And within a matter of a year or so, she was pregnant with her first child. There goes being able to be the worship leader. She had to take time off and care for her family, and, and then another kid came, and then they had to get jobs and things like that. And She never got to become the great worship leader that she always dreamed of. And one day, she's taking the clothes from the washing machine to the dryer, and she begins to hear these words in her heart as she began to just sing out to God. And she wrote the song that we now know of as the Revelation song. She presented it to Christ for the Nations. Carrie Jobe sang it. We put it on our album there at Christ for the Nations. It went all over the world. And to date, that, that, that song, by way of all of its, you know, the money that, that songs make, has brought, brought in about $7 million, of which she got a portion of. In obscurity, the beauty of what God wants to do in you is more important, so then he can do something through you. There's some big takeaways that we want you to get from today's teaching. I want you to write these down, if you don't mind, for just a moment. The first big takeaway is that the wilderness is not punishment. I want you to speak to that. The wilderness is not punishment. Speak to that for a little bit. No,
1: Scott. that's exactly right. When we go back and, and we started talking about you look at the examples, uh, people that are brought into wilderness. Intuitively, we think we're up here. We enjoy our, our period of, of influence and, yeah. and limelight. And then it's like, oh well, we're gonna be taken look, even Moses had to come down off the mountain on occasion. We yeah. were not meant to sit in that in that realm of glory for, for an indefinite period of time. Now there'll come a time when we sit and we praise, yeah. but but now's not the time. So when we're moved out well, like Moses, when he was a sheep herding in his first 40-year stint, is he's moved to the backside of the desert, right? And that's where he encounters God for the first time. The wilderness is not to be looked upon as punishment. It is purely preparation for promotion. And I know that's alliteration with a lot of peace, but it makes it sense. <laughs> I don't Say know if again. I can. I've been practicing all night. <laughs> But but it really is. When we talk about when the Bible, New Testament talks about pouring new wine into new wineskin, that's what God's doing in the wilderness season. He's renewing you. He's restoring you. He's refreshing you. So you can receive the new anointing. Look, if God had taken me over five years ago from a chief of police and put me into men's ministry, it would have been a dismal failure. Yeah. Failure. I did not have the heart of a father. I did not have a heart for other men yeah. to minister to like them, to said, share you were my pain. you a consumer
0: in relationships. I was a
1: consumer of other people's resources. I am second truly means I'm here to only serve and to give. Jesus. And had God put me in that position of men's ministry over five years ago, in my own glory as a mm. chief of police and a Ph.D. college professor, I would have done more to run people away from Christ, yeah. right? And God allowed me to go through that wilderness season. Like God's put you through wilderness seasons. And and we're telling you, it is not punishment. And you don't have to trust us. We've got over 2,000 years of biblical truth to back that up. Yeah,
0: yeah, that's exactly right. It's not punishment. And you say, well, it sure feels like it. Well, again, feelings do not dictate truth. (laughs) Feelings come and go. And when I embraced that it wasn't punishment is when I got set free. I'll tell you, because I kept looking past this place that I was in going, well, if I can get there, if I can just get there, if I can get back there, or wait a minute, I'm further back than I was. If I can get up, 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 they don't know who I am. If they knew who I am, they would treat me better and that kind of stuff. And the Lord really was working in me, something out of me and something in me. And for the first time in many years, I started going, my next door neighbor doesn't know Jesus. I'm going to go cut his grass. I hadn't done that in so long. I'd preached about it but I hadn't done it. I'd preached all over the world but my own neighbors were dying and going to hell and they did, they lived next door to a pastor who never even reached out to them didn't even know their name and I just started hanging out in the front yard. Hey Hi, <laughs> and they were like, oh my God, <laughs> what's wrong with that guy? Hi, oh, I just wanted to meet you, and I felt so weird doing it. And I was like, I am. So, I look so, so weird right now, and, uh, and I don't care, though. I don't care because I want to love again from a pure place, not from a place of using people to get somewhere. It's not punishment. Everybody say, it's not punishment. Here's the second big takeaway we want you to have, and that is every follower of Jesus must undergo obscurity. If you're a follower of Jesus today, say me. Come on, online, would you put that in 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 the chat box? Say me. There you go. As a follower of Jesus, you will go through obscurity. It's part of the beautiful from glory to glory. That transformation that he's doing in us means that you've got to have these highlight times and these times where nobody's calling your name. Times of great influence and times where no influence is really there in front of you. And it's beautiful, why? Because every one of us need to go through those. Scott, speak to that a little bit.
1: You know, I, the Holy Spirit just dropped on my heart when you said that. And, you know, you talk about obscurity. Even coming to Christ brings you into a season of obscurity. You know, I shared initially that I, that I grew up godless. Um, we weren't even CEOs, you know, Christmas, Easter only. We never, I'll, I'll give you all a second to.
0: You weren't even CEOs? <laughs>
1: seriously we 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 didn't my parents never walked us into a church and it wasn't until i left to go to college uh, left state to go to college that i that i found christ and i was so on fire for jesus i was like why 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 didn't i know this my whole life and i always had the seed right but i didn't make the commitment and i was so on fire like you said and i was going to save my parents i was going to introduce them to jesus and I'll never forget, I'm a young man, and, and I sit down at the table, and I tell my mom and dad about the, about the love of Jesus Christ and the way that he set me free and restored me. And, 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 my, and, and I was going to a Southern Baptist church where I was saved, and my mom says, that's a cult. And my dad says, you're dead to me. Oh. And I'm a young man wow. who had never known Christ, wow. and I was just introduced. I was probably a week or two into wow. the faith, and I just expected everyone to want to receive him yeah and i walked and i stood up and i walked out of their house and that was it for me and and you want to talk about being launched into a season of obscurity wow that was a season of obscurity yeah. but you see i was still locked into those chains mm. of that of that oppressive of that dominated of that abused yeah. household that yeah. i grew up in god needed me to break the chains because i was trying to please my mom and dad yeah I wasn't trying to please my father.
0: Yeah, so good.
1: So when he allowed the... And it hurt, like you said. Sure. Right? But I needed those chains to be broken. Otherwise, I would have spent my time in the faith trying to please my mom and dad. Yeah.
0: Right? I want you to speak to... I I really love the acronym that we've come up here uh, with for this call. Speak to that a little bit.
1: You know, when we were talking, and and look, if you guys could just fly on the wall on our brainstorming sessions. It's, It's two South Louisiana
0: guys, and we're just... We're, we're, a lot of Boudreaux and Thibodeau jokes came out in the I'll middle of the night. We're the reason
1: Boudreaux and Thibodeau jokes are made. That's exactly you know? right. But we came this this acronym because it's so scripturally based. It's talking about count the cost, right? Yeah. And there is a cost. So the first is C, it's calling. You're going, to, you're going to have that calling. Sometimes it's crystal clear, yeah. sometimes it's a faint whisper. Uh, sometimes you maybe misinterpret it. That's why we talk about test the spirits, really be in prayer about that calling. You know, uh, over the last several years, I've had men, like, I really feel called to go do this. Do you really feel called? Well, I hate my boss. That's not a calling, you know? So <laughs> check the calling. So, But you will. You will, We've all received it because if we hadn't, we wouldn't be here. Yeah. God has called our names since before we were ever formed. Jesus. and And it's just until we heard that, we answered that call, But once you hear the calling, then you go into obscurity. Look, same thing as Jesus. Jesus was a carpenter for 30 years, right? When he was anointed, when he was baptized by John the Baptist, and he received the Holy Spirit, and God the Father said, this is my son of whom I'm proud. You know what the truth is? Jesus had still only been a carpenter for 30 years. Boom, he was whisked away for 40 years into the wilderness, right? That was his obscurity season. And then you come into stabilization, which is where I was when PA and I first met. You stop asking why. Why me, God? Why did you abandon me? Why have I gone through all this pain? Why have I gone through all this hurt? You stop asking why, and you start seeing that light at the end of the tunnel. Maybe you meet someone who goes, obscurity, (laughs) a spiritual mentor. Even in my time of of, of obscurity, I met my spiritual father, which was so important. Mm. Again, just like Moses, Jethro, who was his spiritual father, anointed, activated his appointment. That was the way my spiritual father came to me, but that becomes a period of stabilization is when you stop asking why and you start going, oh, I see why you called me to retire. I understand why I walked away from the Bible college, right, to plant a church. And then it's transformation. And that's the the coming glory to glory. That's when you've made the next step. Onto glory. It's when you've been transformed. Yeah. But you can only get to... Tra- like we said, I wish we could just say, hey, we're in shape and we're in shape. You've got to go through the process. Yeah. And transformation is when you've received the calling, you've gone through obscurity, you've, you've begun to catch traction and stabilization, yep. and you've arrived at that level. You've arrived at that new anointing, that calling that God had for you. Yeah. It's a beautiful process.
0: Yeah. Which brings us to the third takeaway. Write this down. Third takeaway I want you to have, and that is obscurity. Is a safe place for transformation. It's a safe place for transformation. You know, I think about <clears throat> Ms. Donna Hart. Her whole life, ever since I met her years ago, she said, PA, the call of God on my life is to help young people know Jesus through the public school system. I was like, how are you going to do that? She's I don't know, but God told me that's what I'm going to do. And so there was a, she started Christian schools. She was a principal at, at multiple places, and she went back and got more degree work done. <clears throat> Who would have thought that you could be a, an evangelist in the public school system? And I'll never forget, the school that she was principaling o- over, a private school, it shut down. It went through transition, whatever. And Miss Donna went and had to get a job, and she was working at Home Depot. And every time I'd walk into Home Depot, hey, pastor, woo! I was like, how are you excited about working at Home Depot when you're called and you got degree work done? What in the world? She understood, because she was a little bit more mature Christian than I was, that obscurity is something beautiful and that it's bringing transformation about. It's going to happen. And she got all those people saved at Home Depot, always inviting them to church, they were like, "Get her out of here into her calling before she gets to say." He's like, "We got to get her, let her go." And I'll tell you something. Do you know what she does now? She is the principal of a charter school. She's number two in their organization. They've got, actually, they have their own uh, independent school district, charter independent school district, with, with schools all over the metroplex. And she just got moved to the Cedar Hill campus right here. And I love you so much. I'm so proud of you. And she is changing lives obscurity is a safe place for transformation don't be mad at the home depot times say lord come on let's do this this is a safe place no because you know what because when you're on that stage when you're writing that book when you finally have the opportunity to actually what will you give what do you have see if you misappropriate obscurity you'll have nothing to give in the moment that he promotes you in the in the forefront so you need to embrace it for exactly what it is when we come back next week i'm going to teach you how to go through obscurity i'm going to teach you some of the lessons on how to walk it out and see it to the end would you do me a favor tonight would you give pastor scott a hand i love this man so much will you stand with me, stand with me all hey guys wasn't that a great word today You know, I'm so thankful that the Word isn't limited to a Sunday morning at a certain time or the four walls of the church building, but it can go through whatever time you may be watching this, wherever venue you might be at. The Word of God can minister to you no matter where you are. You know, if you're interested in partnering with what Church on the Hill is doing, not only locally, but globally, you see, I really want to invest with that, with Church on the Hill in advancing kingdom business. You can do so by partnering with us by sending a donation to P.O. Box 3815 cedar hill texas 75106 hey guys we love you we look forward to seeing you again